So Kristen, um, you know, would you please uh, talk to us a little bit about Craft Connect and these particular uh, Zoom meetings that are occurring once a month here? Well, um, most of you, a lot of you know us through Craft Connect, which is an online group that John and I began right before the pandemic. Um, we started experimenting with teaching craft, community reinforcement and family training. And um, we have used this ourselves with our own son. This is a peer-led group. And um, like many programs around the nation and world, we, we find great uh, efficacy in it. And, uh, and we are, um, we're doing these meetings online. And, uh, and we've got, uh, we teach the craft skills for family members, um, as well as uh, dialectic behavioral therapy, DBT, um, which are, are, is a skill set that John and probably Kevin even could tell you a little bit more about. But uh, please visit our website. I'll post it in the chat. Um, if you haven't already seen it, we invite you to. And um, we have begun this series of forums with some of the people we know from the um, treatment world. And um, Dr. McCauley is, uh, is one of our, our favorites. We, we had a chance to work with him while he was um, living here in Utah. And he really inspired us to um, think about our son's um, condition uh, using this disease model, which really made a lot of sense uh, to us and, and has been very helpful to us in, in uh, making decisions for his care and, and in his recovery, which we're very grateful for. And he's um, going to be talking about that. And, and also we had uh, a month ago, the, the, the creator really of, of Craft, who was uh, kind of giving us the whole background. It was, it was really wonderful. And I, I think we should uh, bring Kevin in. And in case you're not familiar uh, with Kevin, I can tell you that the, most of the knowledge that I got, uh, the scientific knowledge uh, about addiction uh, came through uh, Kevin, um, who has done a couple of films um, that using the spectacular landscape of Utah to describe uh, the brain involved in addiction. Uh, he really can uh, turn complex uh, neuroscientific concepts into easy to understand visual images. And that's what helped me so much, especially I'm definitely a, a visual learner. I don't know about you, but he's been helping families and friends of those struggling with uh, health uh, behavioral disorders um, and, you know, keeping the, 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 the knowledge that uh, recovery is, uh, is very much uh, uh, possible. Um, the film that I really learned so much was uh, Pleasure Unwoven. Um, and then he's also directed two films himself, Memo to Sell, uh, about the concepts of recovery management. And then the film I just spoke of, Pleasure uh, Unwoven. He is a senior fellow of the Meadows Behavioral Healthcare Team. He first became interested in the treatment of substance use disorders while serving as a Navy flight surgeon where he observed the US Navy's policy of a treat, a treating addiction 
as a safety, not a moral issue. And that's really, for me, what became so fantastic, uh, which I really didn't know this about the Navy. So what they would do is try to return treated pilots to flight status under careful monitoring. And what that tells me right there, and I don't know about you, but the Navy didn't give up. After all, they had everything invested in Navy pilots. And if you know anything about that, it worth millions of dollars basically for uh, each pilot. Interestingly enough, he found himself on the addiction side himself after he became uh, addicted to prescription opioids and then was court-martialed and imprisoned at Fort Leavenworth in Kansas. Anyway, he's got years and years of experience. And Kevin, we are absolutely thrilled and honored to have you here. And I really can't tell you how, um, uh, you know, your films and your knowledge and sharing it like I described that you did, was a game changer in my family. So I just wanna personally thank you for that uh, right here, right now. What, what's the very latest, anything new since that first film? Uh, <laughs> no, no one seems to have a quarter million dollars that they just wanna hand to me. But uh, <laughs> if, if, if you do, please let me know. I'd love to remake, uh, you know, Pleasure Unwoven, it's about time. But um, I'm very glad that it's been helpful to you, Mark. And uh, you know, it's it's getting a little long in the tooth. I don't I don't think there's anything that's outright wrong about it. It actually is holding up pretty well. And it's just amazing, you know, how that thing gets around. But uh, I feel terrible. There are so many people who have had to sit through it like a dozen times. I wish someone would come and make a, a better film. But anyhow, it's wonderful to be with you. And it's, it's great to see you, John and Kristen. And I have uh, always enjoyed our time together. I, I think very uh, nostalgically about my time in, in Utah. And um, Utah taught me a lot. I'm a better person for having lived in, in Utah. And part of it, I think, is the fact that uh, in the state of Utah, that, that the concept of making choices, of, of exerting one's agency, or if you like, free agency, is, is a living, breathing concept. People actually think about it. They, 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 they um, learn from a very early age. And I've always been fascinated uh, by that, the the idea at least uh, that that there could be problems, that that there could be a disease process that interrupts some of that. This idea of a disease of, of volition, and so you had mentioned Mark about my my interest going back to my, my work as a flight surgeon, but it actually started from the very first few minutes of my third year of of medical school. This is the the first few minutes of, of the clinical work of medical school. So you're not in the classroom anymore. You're now with patients. And, and my first rotation was general surgery. And this is the first patient we saw. So it was very early in the morning. We all as a team walked into this person's room. They turned on the light and, and this patient had uh, pancreatitis. And I remember uh, that that in pathology, they said that pancreatitis is one of the most painful things a human being can have and still live. Uh, and and I'll, I'll never forget the when they turned on the light, the old, this old man, he was an old man, he opened his eyes, they were fluorescent yellow. And the chief of the, the chief of surgery would stand at the bed as the residents, you know, did their work. And I just remember him saying, you know, if you, if you don't stop drinking, you're going to die. I mean, that, that pain in your belly is you dying. 
So we're getting kind of tired of fixing you up every time you come in here. So why don't you tell us right now, are you going to quit or are you going to die? And I'll never forget this, this old man's fierce eyes just staring back at this doctor. And he said, you know, I, I would if I could. And, and it took me years to really unpack everything that I was seeing in that moment, because you've got a surgeon who can do anything in the OR, and he's powerless to help his dying patient. And you've got a patient who has endured unbelievable pain, and yet he still can't really seem to, to bring that pain to bear on his decision-making process. And it was an extremely poignant moment, these two people trying to reach out uh, to each other. And, and that, that, that patient, the minute that he sensed that rejection or that judgment, he pulled away. And I think that that, that, that is a phenomenon that you see in, in addiction, uh, and especially because it is a disease of volition, that, that patients have to carve out a little space for themselves where they can make their own decisions. And, and they'll do it, you know, right, right through the doors of insanity and death, as we say in AA. And I think that what, what, I, what I respect so much about craft is that it recognizes that and that it doesn't take a heavy-handed uh, approach uh, to this disease of volition. It tries to meet people where they're at. It tries to understand. It tries to give everybody communication tools. Um, it, it, it really is a strength-based approach. Uh, that was something that amazed me about the Navy creating pilots and putting them back in the cockpit is that they, they recognize the inherent value uh, of their pilots and, and the fact that they could get better. I found that very, uh, very inspiring, very, very spiritual. And so that's uh, where I kind of, I'm, I'm so glad that, that John and Kristen and Mark, that you've created this, this uh, craft uh, opportunity, this, uh, the, this uh, infrastructure in Utah, and also this parents group, because I think it's sort of the, the thinking person's humane approach to this otherwise extremely frustrating problem. Uh, I think that that volition or choice or free agency, whatever you want to call it, is so central to our concept, our self-concept as human beings, that when we see it start to collapse in another person, we have an overwhelming urge to get in there and control. And I think it, it takes great skill and great patience and great heart to not do that, uh, to not try to overpower the individual, but to try to to, to make more of, a, of an attractive uh, uh, way of, of coming into recovery. I think that that creates much more abiding recovery, not just for the, for the person who has substance use disorder, but for the entire family. And so, you know, I've, I've thought a lot about this idea of a, of a disease of volition. I'm going to, um, if I could, I'm going to share my screen and just move to this relatively short uh, um, uh, PowerPoint that I have here. Mark, can you give me a thumbs up if you see a sunset with a, uh, okay, great. All right, we're in business. Um, as always, oh, and let me open up my chat window here. As always, uh, you can always reach me at this email. Um, and I've put also the website of our second film, uh, Memo to Self. I'm going to put in the chat here, um, sort of my, oops, I don't have it. Uh, well, I'll put it there before we're done. Uh, 
And that is, let's see, no, nope. we'll put it there before I've done. And that is the link to the two films, uh, but also uh, my current folder uh, that I use for handouts and things like that. So if you want to, uh, to have that, I'll, I'll make sure it's up there uh, before we're done. So this is kind of the, the, uh, the question that's always fascinated me. You know, I must say I've, I've become much less of an evangelist for the disease model over the years that I've been that been thinking about this because I meet so many people who have great recovery and they don't really see themselves as having had a disease. So the first sort of rolling with resistance that I've learned to do is not be too heavy handed if a person just says, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't really see myself as, as being diseased, you know, as a person in recovery. I do think that the evidence is pretty strong that there are changes in the brain that are pathologic. Uh, and that's consistent with our understanding of disease, but it doesn't, a person doesn't have to believe one way or the other, uh, or, 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 uh, as they craft their narrative recovery, necessarily adopt the disease model. But I, I often ask our, our clients and our patients at, at the Meadows, you know, try and really think about what it would be like to have a disease of volition. What, what would follow from that? What would be implied by having a disease in choice or a disease in agency? And I try to think, you know, is there an analog? Can I think of um, like if there could be a such thing as a disease of a broken leg, what what would follow from that? And I think that if 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 that sort of thing was possible, well, that it would, you know, it would definitely hurt because <laughs> the bone is very uh, vascularized and and innervated. Um, there'd be a deformity that usually wasn't there. You could see it, and the person wouldn't be able to walk. Something that they've always been able to do before, they suddenly couldn't do. They'd try to. They'd get up and try to walk on it. Boom, fall right back down to the floor. If anything, what would strike them first is confusion. Is like, why? I've always been able to do this. Why? Why can't I? All of these things would follow if there could be a such thing as a disease of, of a broken leg. Well, what would the treatment be for this disease? Well, it would be immobilization. It would actually be the opposite of walking. It would be casting or in, you know, externally or internally fixating the bone fragments and waiting for them to heal. And, and then there would be a certain amount of physical therapy involved in getting full function back. And there might be a lifelong vulnerability at that fracture site that the person, you know, uh, would have a, a, a risk of a refracture. Again, all of these things make sense to me if there could be such thing as a broken leg. Well, if there could be a such thing as a disease of volition, what would that look like? Well, it would also be painful, maybe not physically painful, but certainly emotionally and spiritually painful. Um, the person would try over and over again to make that drinking work, to make cocaine. They'd be certain that if they just, you know, did it right, that it would work. They see other people doing it. Why is it that they can't? Um, the fact that they can't make it work is, is really going to be a source of bafflement uh, before anything else. And what would the solution be? Well, in the tradition that I got sober in, it would be actually immobilizing uh, my choice, at least, you know, putting myself in the hands of someone that I trusted and that I knew would would uh, treat me well and sort of saying, you know what, I, every time I try to handle things, it falls apart. What do you think I should do? And then there would be a sort of graduated 
series of exercises that helped me sort of rebuild my volition, my agency, my ability to make choices that are really in accordance with my values. But I would have to figure out, okay, well, what are those things that I really can't handle that I thought that I might have been able to, but it turned out I, I never really could. And that's what I think is the wisdom of the serenity prayer is that in trying to fix this volitional disorder, we have to sort of separate the world into, into those things I need to take responsibility for and those things that I that I just need to, to let go of. And I think the, all of these are the implications of, of the idea, at least, of a disease of volition. And that's why I think craft handles this so cleverly, because it doesn't just try to railroad the person. It kind of understands that, that everyone needs their space, everyone needs to be heard. Uh, if you come straight at the problem, uh, you're just going to, the defenses are going to go up and the person's you know, just going to shut down and you're not going to get anywhere. And so I think that that's, that's why I call this the thinking person's approach to this uh, disorder of volition. When I think of the neuroscience of addiction, I think you can kind of summarize all of it uh, with three simple sentences. These are the sentences that I think of, if you know these sentences, you really know half the neuroscience of addiction. The first one being that addiction is a disorder in the brain's ability to perceive pleasure. So it's a broken pleasure sense, and that's primarily a problem in the dopamine system. Dopamine is not the only chemical that's important, but it appears in addiction, but it appears to be at the core of all pleasurable experiences that we have, at least the first time that we do them. And if that defect in the dopamine system occurs, it will cause uh, a problem in volition. So it turns out my, my capacity for volition rests upon the proper functioning of my dopamine system. If, if, that, if I lose that, then I'm going to have trouble in my, the quality of my decision making. And I may not be able to see the impairment that I have in my decision making, which is very, that's going to be hard to strategize for. Uh, the, so those are two important sentences. The third sentence really involves the cause of this dopamine defect. And we know the cause is not genes. We know that genes are important. They're a big part of the story. But you really have to have something in the environment acting on a genetic vulnerability or through a genetic resilience to break the dopamine system and then create everything that follows from that. And that is environmental stress, stress, severe stress, stress that the person doesn't have the, the ability to handle yet, um, stress that is repetitive, stress that comes early in life. There is even some evidence that transgenerational stress and trauma can affect the functioning and the development of the dopamine system. And this is what allows us to see the overlap of addiction with trauma-related disorders. This helps us see the role of adverse childhood experiences. So early life adversity in the first 18 months of life uh, has a major effect on your risk for a whole bunch of chronic diseases. Uh, this helps us also see the intersection of addiction and another dopamine disorder, and that is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So that's that's a busy slide there, but I think that's a that's kind of where we are right now, at least in our medical understanding of addiction. Addiction is a stress-induced, genetically mediated defect in the reward learning system that involves the chemical dopamine, which then causes problems for all of the uh, executive function up in the frontal cortex. So I, again, like, like I uh, often do in my lectures, I ask people to really think about, okay, what would it mean 
to have a, a disorder in your ability to perceive pleasure correctly. Next time you have a pleasurable experience, maybe it's a delicious piece of chocolate cake and you put it into your mouth. And believe me, I looked through a lot of, looked through hundreds and hundreds of stock photo, photo images to find the most delicious looking piece of chocolate cake I could. This is it, right? Hours and hours of work. Uh, and, and say you take that piece of chocolate cake and you put it into your mouth and it's delicious. And you say, what do you say? You say, yum. What is that yum? How does the brain do yum? What is happening in the brain when we have a pleasurable experience? Well, it turns out it's several different areas of the brain that are working together, but the process starts very deep in the brain in this very old and not conscious, but extremely efficient uh, part of the brain called the midbrain. The midbrain is really a, a survival engine because it is so efficient at ensuring survival. That's where things start to go wrong. And all the processing that follows is going to reflect that problem that occurred in this early dopamine, uh, very unconscious survival processing. So dopamine is the first in a series of chemicals that the brain will use to create that yum. Now, what, what you and I think of as yum, right, are all of these downstream chemicals. So to have yum, we probably need our endogenous opioid system. We probably need our endogenous cannabinoid system. Let's let's make this not just any piece of chocolate cake. Let's make it grandma's chocolate cake. So grandma's chocolate cake is fundamentally different from all other pieces of chocolate cake because it's not just good. It contains all of these memories and maybe even some attachment that we have to grandma. So it could be that oxytocin uh, is a big part of yum, but I can deconstruct that yum all the way back to dopamine, which really codes for a number of things. People have tried hard to kind of capture into words what dopamine uh, handles, but I think I think of it as the attention getter chemical. It, it grabs my attention and it says to me, this is important for survival, pay attention to it. And this is really the central dogma of addiction neuroscience. What all drugs of abuse, what all intoxicants do is they create these super physiologic releases of dopamine. Uh, and that's not really what the brain was meant to handle. Uh, this spike of dopamine apparently uh, is, is the toxic insult uh, from drug use. Now, their drugs differ in their ability to release dopamine. Uh, the route of administration plays a role in how fast that dopamine comes on. Some drugs, uh, the evidence is equivocal as to whether or not uh, they release dopamine, so the story is still out on, on caffeine. We'll have to see how things shake out. But it is that spike of dopamine, and probably the two drugs that release the most dopamine the fastest are smoked cocaine and smoked methamphetamine. They the, the, the degree to which they release that dopamine is the degree to which my brain recognizes this thing that released the dopamine. And so what happens in the case of, of addiction is that the drug becomes so prominent, so, so efficient in its ability to push back against stress in its ability to get my attention uh, that it really becomes uh, uh, more important than anything else. 
since this is survival level processing, the drug and, and survival actually become equated. And that means it's going to be very, very hard to bring any consequence to bear. And so, again, this is why I think uh, Kraft uh, has an intelligent approach there. If you come at the person with consequences, you've essentially just drawn the line in the sand. If you say, well, if you use drugs one more time, you're going back to prison. In, in some ways, you've just kind of made it almost likely that the person uh, will cross that line. So that's why I think that's a very dangerous tactic because one of the key features of addiction is that the person continues to use drugs and continues to engage in the addictive behavior despite these mounting negative consequences and punishments. And I think that's a very counterintuitive thing. Uh, I've spent the best better part of 20 years trying to explain to, to prosecutors, sometimes to parents, uh, that, that the more pain you bring to the table, uh, the more you've just kind of thrown down that gauntlet, uh, which is why I think it's unwise. So the dopamine hypothesis basically says that what all addictive chemicals have in common is their ability to release dopamine in this fashion, and not just chemicals, but also behaviors. These are normally pleasurable behaviors that release normal amounts of dopamine, but they can be practiced. They can be ritualized. They can be recognized by that person as a means of pushing back against major depression or trauma or whatever stressor the person is facing. And so this is this idea that we've really got these, this large list of chemicals and behaviors and it's very easy to stop one by moving over to another, but you don't remove the intoxication. So I think a lot of people who are addicted to cocaine and methamphetamine also have problems with sexual compulsivity. If they stop the cocaine and the meth, but then move over to sexual compulsivity, well, it's good that they're not using cocaine or meth anymore, but the, the intoxication is still there. It's still going on. And that's why... I, came up with this goofy periodic table, which uh, again, at the end, I'll give you the link to, uh, to this. And uh, we're about to redo this. So if you've got a favorite drug and it's not up there, please let me know. I want to be very inclusive. Uh, so there are a number of things. I might point out that some of the things on this chart may in fact end up being treatments for a number of different psychiatric problems such as trauma, such as treatment-resistant depression. Again, the jury is still out there. We know that buprenorphine, because of its special properties as an opioid, it's a different opioid from all the others in that green row there. Because of those difference in properties, it can actually be an effective treatment uh, for opioid use disorder. But this is sort of the, um, the, 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 the number of theories that said that dopamine was not really a wanting, excuse me, it wasn't really a liking chemical because liking involved all of those downstream chemicals. It was more the drive chemical. It was the wanting chemical, right? Or that dopamine didn't signal pleasure per se, but if you received a reward that was better than you thought it would be, well, that 
was dopamine. But it turns out that subsequent research has showed that it's not just good things that release dopamine, sometimes adverse of things, traumatic things can release dopamine. Sometimes even neutral things can release dopamine. And so I kind of made a list here of, of all the things that are associated with dopamine release. At the top of the list would be things that are pleasurable, the enjoyable things. And that certainly makes sense that, you know, uh, pleasurable uh, behaviors that were manipulated into behavioral addictions or uh, dopamine releasing chemicals that became uh, a substance use disorder. But it's also things that are new. It's also things that are uh, aversive. Um, the fact that things are almost about to happen or nearby, proximal in time or space, those things also release dopamine. Even things that are enumerated, for instance, the number of likes that you get on your social media post, that has a dopamine component to it. And so in many ways, dopamine is, is not a pleasure chemical alone. It's not even a, a, a panic chemical alone. It is the surprise chemical. It is the chemical that gets my attention, zeroes me in, and tells me this is important for survival. Pay attention to it. And it's those spikes of dopamine that are toxic because they damage the receptors for dopamine. And if you want to point to one pathophysiologic difference between the person with a drinking problem and the person who actually has alcohol use disorder, it would be the population of those dopamine receptors, a specific population called the dopamine D2 receptor. The person in the red box here, that is the person who is struggling with anhedonia from major depressive disorder, an underfunctioning dopamine system. That is the person who's actively using. That is the person with ADHD. That is the person who's been serially traumatized and struggling with PTSD. The good news is, and again, here's another feather in Kraft's cap, is that these receptors do come back if you can take the intoxication out of the picture and practice normal, healthy, pleasurable activities. And that's a, a, a big part of, I think, the attraction of Kraft is it really focuses on trying to use alternative reinforcers uh, as a sort of, you know, um, not so much a stick, but more of a carrot. Uh, and anytime those reinforcers are practiced within that person's family or within that person's recovering peer group or within that person's profession, let's say, or, or, or education, they, they are that much more powerful. Uh, and so I think, you know, getting that pilot back in the cockpit is a big part of what helps that dopamine system correct itself. And why do we want that? Because we need those dopamine receptors to drive our frontal cortex. It turns out that population of dopamine receptors is what gives the proper signal up to these areas of the frontal cortex. If I've got a large number of these dopamine receptors, you know, good, healthy, you know, fat population of dopamine D2 receptors, then my frontal cortex works better. And we can actually see these on these, uh, uh, see this on these uh, scans uh, of the brain. If I start to lose those receptors by falling back into different forms of intoxication, well, then my frontal cortex doesn't work as well. My quality of my decision-making suffers. My ability to, to interact with, with my family and my peers isn't as good. My self-awareness of my behavior isn't as good. And we can actually see these areas of the brain 
And the anterior cingulate cortex is, is, is one of the key parts of the brain that isn't working here. And so this is essentially my error detector. It picks up on discrepancies. And one of the discrepancies that it can pick up on our social cues. And if I'm, my, if I'm actively using and, and that's signaling up to my orbital front or anterior cingulate cortex is not working correctly, then I can't see what I look like. I can't see how my behavior is negatively impacting people around me. And it's that blindness, that failure of social cognition that can do a lot of damage uh, to my relationships. Then there's the orbital frontal cortex. It also receives that signal. And the orbital frontal cortex calculates the value of things. But this is important. Every time the brain calculates value, it also calculates likelihood. There is a probability component to that calculation. And when that signaling is improper, I have a tendency to overvalue future drug-related rewards and overestimate the likelihood that they will work out as I intend them to, but then undervalue any consequences that might result and underestimate the probability that those consequences will in fact come true. And so with our patients at the Meadows, I'm trying to lead them to this next slide, which is really the most important slide in the deck, and I think the hardest one to see. As a person with addiction, I have a very troubled relationship with risk. I can't see it, and I'm going to need a lot of help from the people around me, from the community, from the network that I have around me. They, they're sort of going to support me when I can't see the risk in leaving treatment and going home and living in the same apartment that I used to drink in or continuing to hang around the girlfriend who still does Coke occasionally. And that's again, another uh, power I think of, of the craft approach, but it leaves us with this problem that every person in recovery has to deal with, which is how do I stay sober? How do I go forward when the very areas of the brain that I need to do that Aren't, aren't working correctly. And I think the secret is, is recognizing that I, that I can't make the big decision, okay, I'm gonna stay sober. But what I can do is I can break that big decision down into a couple hundred little decisions, which are much easier to make. And that's the idea of recovery management. I talk about this in my, in my second film, but you're gonna see a lot of craft uh, and the wisdom of craft, and quite frankly, the evidence that supports the use of craft uh, in any good recovery management plan. Now, again, if you're talking about a, a crack-smoking neurosurgeon or a blackout drunk 76, 767 captain over at Delta Airlines, there isn't a lot of option if you want to go back to work. You have to do these things. But in the real world, in your family, let's say, you may not be able to just impose this recovery management plan on a person. You may have to use a, a more longitudinal uh, um, um, relationship-based, uh, um, life course-based approach to uh, changing these things in the person's life. But the good news is, and again, this is something that Kraft recognizes, is that most people who stick with it uh, do eventually get it. Rather than this being a lifelong disease that will always torture the person, it turns out that people do get sober. And, and with the kind of support uh, that, that you see in families who are engaged uh, in, in a process like craft, uh, that is the kind of support that, that leads to success.
So I'll stop here uh, and kind of turn things back to you, uh, Mark, and see if anybody has any uh, questions about what we've talked about or just general questions. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to copy and I'm going to paste those links that I promised you. So that's a link to my main folder that I'm using right now, my latest slide deck, a lot more slides than we did today, but if you want them, there they are. And then also the links to the streaming versions that I keep on Vimeo of my two films. Uh, so Mark, uh, I will stop my share and turn it back to you. I, I, I mean, there is some uh, new stuff that I, that I learned there and, and thank you so much for that. L let me ask you uh, if, if someone uh, came in uh, right now to the clinic and and uh, you know uh, willing uh, to to get help um you know especially you know because addiction is it when you're in the throes of it it's it is so difficult to stop and of course we hear the you know take you know each day at a time each day at a time but um for a family walking in with a a, a member who's an addict What's your first step with them? What do you tell them the minute that they're walking in and, and what would the first steps be? Well, I guess my general rule is always try to frame in the positive. Uh, the more I frame in terms of losses and, and, and negative things, the more likely the person and the family too is to be risk-taking. So if I say, if you don't come into inpatient treatment right now, you're going to relapse, People tend to, again, just like that patient did, the first patient I ever saw, carve out a little space for themselves and say, you know what? I'll take my chances. Thank you very much. So I try not to do that. I try to frame in terms of gains. Like, it's great that you're here. This is a very, very healthy thing. There are lots of options that we have uh, because then people tend to be a little bit more conservative. They try to hang on to what it is that they that they've already got. And this is the famous Kahneman and Tversky studies uh, that were done uh, on, on uh, that showed that, that there isn't necessarily a lot of rational thought going on, but people do react from a more emotional spot. And if you, if you recognize that, if you really try to understand, so what is it that, that heroin gives you? Tell me, tell me what it is, the, tell me the cons and benefits. Let's make a list right now. People want to stick around for that. They, they don't necessarily want to get up and leave. And so we're really talking about just basic motivational interviewing uh, tools. But what I'm trying to do is, is validate uh, and and make that person you know feel welcome. Uh, get them to come. Do everything I can to get them to come back a second time. And if we are talking about opioids, then I would at least want that person to know what their options are in terms of things like medication for opioid use disorder, because we can use these medications to make that person feel more comfortable today. I mean, like immediately. And that that I think is an important uh, uh, faith getter, if you like on the part of the patient, if I can say, listen, I can, I can make you feel, you know, you, I know you've been through a lot. I can make you feel better today. Uh, that really begins that relationship. Yeah. And I'm curious too, um, you know, because the homeless issue has been uh, so prevalent in a lot of major cities where, uh, and I, I live in Los Angeles and uh -huh. it's all around me, under the freeway, so on and so forth. And, uh, I know at one point, you know, they were talking about how if anybody wanted a bed, they've got a bed. Right. So there's whole agencies that will go around and ask these people that are on the street, 
um, you know, if they'd like a place and, but you can't use, um, many, you know, uh, uh, you know, will choose to not get the help, uh, which is an interesting, um, uh, you know, thing because so many families uh, will just, oh, it's been so heavy, it's been so hard that it's like, you know, push them out. And then, you know, I mean, it's, I can't even imagine being a parent and thinking, am I going to ever see this person again, because they're gone, I can't, keep track of them. Um, I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's, it's just, what, what do you think about the way that that's being handled and, and treated and just these thousands of people not getting any help? It seems like it's more of a mental health issue in some ways. Well, I think this is where it spills out of, of the conversation about addiction in general. Uh, and, and we have to really listen to those who advocate for the houselessness, ha houseless and the homeless, because there's a difference. There's a difference between the person who doesn't have a place to stay and the person who, you know, considers themselves homeless, which is a, a different concept. So what, what you have here is a person who's trying to carve out some space for themselves saying, you know, I appreciate what you're doing, but I'm not just going to go you know, uh, do what you want it is, want me to do. There's some freedom that I have, you know, in being on the street. And I think every community has to decide, uh, you know, what it is that they want to do, that they're willing to do to support that person. But again, this is the problem of a disease of volition. You know, when I see it collapse, when someone says, I'm just going to live under that freeway overpass, there's this overwhelming urge to just get in there and put the person into a into a hotel room, a motel room. And right. that's where I think we make our mistake. Right. Uh, and I think that there are some people who, you know, if I've got a mailbox, I'm not free. You know, if I if I have a if I have to do this, then I'm not free. Right. And we really have to understand, you know, what is it that the person you know, needs to be free and, and what is it that we can provide and be right there when they say, okay, I'll take that. Yeah. And um, I do, I do think that, you know, craft has shown these wonderful techniques to, you know, help motivate people, uh, you know, into treatment. Um, listen, I, I want to uh, ask a question that Angela's uh, posted and thank uh -huh. you, Angela. Here's the question. Do you think there needs to be more oversight on statistics of rehabs, whereas tracking, measuring the success and failures of the residents, and then maybe further tracking individuals and their history, which leads to potential homelessness? So you're just going to ask me a bunch of easy questions all night? Is that the way this is? <laughs> <laughs> that is a huge question. So I'll just tell you, you know, uh, the whole point of the affordable, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act was to move to a value-based model of reimbursement. And that is, I will give you a dollar, Doc, if you can show me that you're going to give me a dollar of value back. And so if you're trying to, if you're trying to run a family practice clinic uh, or practice, family practice practice, uh, you're going to have to show that you gave a certain value for the money that you're paid. And that is a, what we call value-based costing or value-based reimbursement. That is not the model that most addiction treatment programs work on. Uh, they just expect to be paid fee for service, which is we did 30 days of treatment and you're going to pay me, 
an ungodly amount of money. If we were ever to apply a value-based model uh, to addiction treatment, the entire the entire industry would collapse. And I think it's high time that we did, quite frankly. Yeah, thank you very much. I think you know, it's it, high time that 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 consumers say, if I give you a dollar, what are you going to give me back? And that, quite frankly, payors say, I'm willing to give you some money, but you got to show me some stats. And I want to know, you know, if this person stays 30 days at your program, what is the general length of sobriety that I can expect once that person leaves? And that's a, that's a real challenge because again, we're talking about a disease of volition and I can make the most beautiful, wonderful treatment yeah. program in the world and the patient may not take it. And yeah, so we, then, we, then we're kind of moving back into, a, okay, well, what can we do for this person? Can we get them, can we at least get them connected with the local harm reduction group? Can we at least get them some things that we know, you know, are likely to save their lives? And we make sure that everybody who leaves our programs whether they leave AMA or not, has a Narcan kit in their hand. Uh, that is the bare minimum that I think, you know, we can do. But I would like to know, you know, how long are our patients staying sober? We don't have that data, not to my satisfaction. Right. You know? uh, and I, I, so I think that that's a very, very important question, but we've got a long way to go until we're there. And it's, Other countries uh, do it. Other countries do it. Yeah. I, I, in Los Angeles, um, uh, you know, we see these ads for these clinics and it's doesn't seem to be as much about the treatment as the fact that it's a luxury uh, resort overlooking the beach with a beautiful swimming pool. And oh, by the way, we'll come and get you at the airport in a limousine, you know, and it's like, holy crummy. Uh, Gail's got a question here too. Thank you so much, Gail. Uh, here it is. If the individual has significant mental health issues like bipolar, how can you reach through the impact of those issues as well as the addiction damage? How do you engage those individuals in treatment? What's different about working with someone with comorbid issues? Well, you're not treating just one disorder, so you're going to need multiple levels of expertise. Uh, not only are you going to need to have, you know, a kind of community-based mental health team, working on the addiction and the uh, and the bipolar disorder but i also think that basic things like housing and access to healthcare all of those things matter and the degree to which the person is willing to adhere to a treatment regimen is going to be based on the quality of that multidimensional support uh, so i think you know the the community psychiatry approach the community mental health approach that is worked for bipolar disorder can also work, I think, uh, for addiction. But you may have to kind of roll with, with varying degrees of, if you like, willingness or compliance uh, that that person you know, moves in and out of over time. And there may be some hard days and there may be some, some setbacks along the way. What I don't think should happen is if the person doesn't adhere to the treatment that they're cut off from it. Uh, right. And so I think, you know, we're talking about people here and, and, and the fact of the matter is, is that they, they don't always do what you want them to do, but they're, the ability to come in and receive, you know, some kind of care should still be there. 
Yeah. We, we can debate about things like wet houses and things like that. I think that that's a very, very difficult concept. I've run a sober living house <laughs> and everyone, for the most part, uh, so much as we thought, uh, was sober. I don't know how to run a wet house, but I'm sure that there are people who've developed the skill set and the expertise to at least make it a humane and, and as functional place as possible. Yeah. Um, Jerry is asking, what are the thoughts on reviews of rehabs? Should you read them? Should you write a review from your experience? Uh, uh, Jerry has three experiences dealing with the outcomes with her daughter just since March. Right. If you look at other uh, healthcare facilities, Yes, there are ratings, there are standards. You should be able to go and get the data, let's say on LDS Hospital or Intermountain Health uh, uh, in Murray. Uh, that data is published. And, and um, unlike Yelp or something like that, where you're likely to get you know, a mixture of, of, of gripes uh, and, and, and praises, uh, there, there is standardized data that you can get on healthcare institutions, you can figure out their, you know, their surgical rate, uh, their rate of surgical infections, things like that. And I think that, that that data should be available. There are a number of groups that have tried to do it. it it's always sort of fallen apart. Um, but the more the reimbursement is paid for by the government, the more you'll have the ability to do that. So it begs the question, Mark, for every person who gets into that limo and drives up to Malibu and spends $120,000 for their care, how, for each of those, how does that make it harder for other people to get any care? And right. that's the question that, that I think should be asked. Yeah. For everybody who, screen, who, who skims that cream off the top, how does it make it more difficult to just get basic care for the people who are below that level of cream? And I think that that's a question that the addiction treatment industry should be forced to answer. Um, and if I could just go back to the sober house, uh, mm -hmm. Brenda uh, asks a good question. I was guessing, but I'll see if I'm right. But uh, you referred to a wet house. What is a, right. a wet house? Is that where they still are using? Uh, well, so there's still drinking. So in other oh. words, a person can get uh, shelter, um, but they're also allowed to drink. And, uh, um, you know, if, for a while. If alcohol like, is the, but if alcohol is the problem, then a wet house doesn't seem to be like a good idea. Or is it, you know, if it's another addiction, cocaine, opiates that. Yeah, now, in terms of illegal behavior going on in the facility, I think that you run into problems where well, of course. You, know, you don't have any support of local law enforcement or local government. You may not even be able to get insured. So it's hard. Where do you draw these lines? You know, I, I definitely believe in harm reduction. I think that, that the fact that it just puts the person's, the value of a person's life as the dominant you know, motivator really recommends it, don't you think? Yeah. But, you know, at what point do you draw the line? I certainly understand needle exchange. I certainly understand, you know, um, safe injection sites. I don't know about safe supply. I don't know if that, the other thing is, is it's not just for most people who inject drugs, it's not just clean needles, it's venous access. And, you know, if you've been to the hospital lately, they have techs who go around with little ultrasound machines and can find exactly where your vein is and, you know, do a ultrasound guided uh, IV access procedure. 
are we going to do that at your local harm reduction place? I, I don't know. And so I think that that's, that's part of what every community needs to decide is where, where are we willing to draw the line? And I, I think if you if you use the standards that are, for instance, in, at work in Seattle and impose those on Salt Lake City, it's not going to work. So that's a that's a that's a that's a larger conversation that the entire community needs to engage in. And there are, um, you know, there are, um, oh, you know, uh, blockers. What are those blocker drugs uh, called for, you know, opiates and and, and so, so like so Narcan and naloxone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, um, well, there's uh, there's two. There's naloxone, which is a short acting right, and then suboxone receptor agonist. But then there's there's naltrexone, which is a little bit longer acting. Those are straight up antagonists to the receptor. But then you have drugs that kind of antagonize and agonize at the same thing at the same time. And that would be a drug like buprenorphine, which is the active drug in in suboxone and subutex. Okay, and then you know because uh, I, I would think that if that, especially with opiates, if it's so hard that to to get through to them that if you can just literally like a suboxone which uh, it seems to be very successful i'm wondering what your thoughts are on that you can really get somebody where you can sober them up really fast and and begin uh, the process of uh of recovery and at least reaching a clearer mind in a way well sort of you can you can definitely um you can definitely improve uh, the risk of mortality if you get a person on medication for opioid use disorder. Now, there's there's a number of medications that fall under that. One's methadone, one's buprenorphine, one would be extended release naltrexone. Uh, they all have their benefits uh, and they all have, you know, uh, some drawbacks. Um, the idea of creating low threshold uh, buprenorphine treatment. In other words, if you come in to the ER having overdosed, that doctor can give you buprenorphine on your way out the door and a number to call so that you can continue that buprenorphine, go to the clinic and you know get evaluated and get into formal medication for opioid use disorder treatment. Uh, that, that I think is, is valuable. Um, but I'll be honest with you, you know, I, we have a number of programs at the Meadows and for the last three years, I've been trying to, um, you know, figure out how MAT or MOUD is going to fit into our programs. The biggest problem that we have is we say, hey, we've got this great therapy. It can definitely decrease your mortality risk. Patients do not want it. And so now I've got to figure out, and here's where Kraft might be helpful, is this patient's refusal of the one drug that we know can right. decrease mortality, is that the act of an informed patient expressing their rights of self-determination, which we will uphold, not because we're nice people, but because it's the law, right? or is this addictive thinking, right? And that's kind of what we have to kind of parse out over the course of the person's uh, uh, treatment is, is, you know, is this, is this just a knee-jerk reaction uh, that's not really based in good decision making, or is this a person saying, "No, you know, I, that's not for me." Yeah, very that's, hard to do. That's hard to do. really, that's really, really interesting. Uh, yeah. Really interesting. Um, Lori has a question: How much does will of the addicted person enter in, and how do you shape that 
towards treatment, uh, uh, motivational interviewing, if, if you will. Right, right. Well, I mean, we can use the word will, we can use the word agency, we can use the word free agency, we can use the word volition, but really what we're talking about is a disorder where from time to time, my will is not as good as it could be. And I think that that's an important understanding that, that, that the brain is constantly moving from state to state. And at any given moment, my will is good. And I, I wake up in the morning, I feel really motivated to stay in recovery and willing to do some things that are kind of pains, um, but I'm willing to do them to stay in recovery. What I'm curious about is how does that fail? How is it that, that what was there at 8 a.m. is not there at 4 p.m. and is completely gone at, at 8 p.m., right? Uh, and so, you know, I think that would be interesting to know. I think what you try to do is you try to provide things for that person where on any given day, they are less likely to fall into that brain state where they just throw up their hands and they say, screw it, I'm just going to use. And I think that that does come down to things like housing, social connectedness, spiritual growth, ability to get you know, a good job to have a future, all of those things that that are for the most part in place when people are able to transition from, you know, early sobriety into long-term sobriety. And we do have a pretty good bead on, on what those factors are that keep will, you know, turned up <laughs> that allow the person to make you know, decisions that are really in accordance with their values. Yeah. But we have to decide as a society, are we willing, are we willing to make sure that everyone has access to the benefits that I had when I got into recovery? That's, that's a tough one, yeah. right? Yeah. Utah, I, I love the state. I love the people of Utah, but they were slow to expand Medicaid. And when they did, it was a marginally generous expansion of Medicaid. Uh, that's the kind of problem that we're struggling with. Yeah. You know, and interesting, you, you bring that up. And because I, I was wanting to ask, because we've just got a couple of minutes, is, mm -hmm. is what you see uh, in the future. But it sounds to me like the only thing we can really see in the future is if the average, ordinary, you know, not wealthy American can get the financial support to get a family member, loved one uh, into a, 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 you know, a, a treatment plan and, and succeed with, uh, you know, the, the stages of recovery. Right, right. That, that's what I'm hoping is as, as, um, as universal access starts to kind of penetrate, uh, that you'll be able to have options for different patients who are at different stages of their recovery. So for the person who says, I'm not ready to stop, we will have you know, harm reduction options for that individual. For the person who says, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to at least give it a try, okay, we will have say medication assisted treatment or, or, or something like that. Uh, for the person who's solidly in recovery, will will not be doing the things that subtly ruin their chances of getting into long-term recovery. Yeah. Maybe we'll have some new options like ketamine or psilocybin, I have no idea what ships are on the horizon that seem to be able to kind of jar the person out of whatever motivational state they're in at that moment and put them into a better motivational yeah. state. I don't know. There's a lot to learn there, a lot more research, but I'm, I'm ready 
for those other uh, options to be available. I think that they will come. What I'm concerned about with this recent enthusiasm about psychedelic medications is that it's just gonna be a driver of health disparity. And so you're gonna have people who are able to just pay for it and get it, but then you're gonna have other people who can't and they what, go to jail? Right. So that's uh, Michael Pollan is selling a lot of books right now and he's all over my Netflix channel. Uh, I really wanna know more about how that's going to worsen uh, health inequities in the United States. Well, listen, Kevin, just the fact that you've got such a, a, a grasp on a lot of the science and you've got this, what I think is a very uh, brilliant way of speaking to you know, minions like me that can really understand it. Uh, it no, I'm serious. It's a, it's a gift and it's been just a pleasure to hear you speak and, and educate us even more. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much to all of you, to John and Kristen and Mark. Uh, I'm, I'm so proud of what you've done uh, in Utah, and I wish you the very, very best. It's a wonderful resource that you've made available for families. And, and Kevin, if you, if you just could, uh, for those that are listening on the podcast, give your website info out so uh, they could go and get more information, uh, especially on the, on the charts and stuff. That sure, I'll just, I'll just post those things in the chat one more time. Um, that's, uh, that's, that's my best uh, access to, to oh, me. Uh, and, yeah, and you're right because I would have to give out uh, uh, slash SF. I mean, there's a, it, they're, they're crazy links, but we can get them for you uh, right. here. John, and, anything and you'd like to say? That's my email there. And I'm just grateful to uh, for you the amount of time and and uh, your friendship, uh, Dr. McCauley, means the world to all of us. Uh, we are going to post this, friends. Uh, on our website as a full-length podcast, and then we'll also do some uh, some shorter videos. We'll let you know when that's available. We're grateful to Dr. McCauley for letting us uh, record that and share that with you. We hope that you'll share what you've heard tonight with others. Our our uh, our greatest desire is to just be helpful, and uh, we're grateful that uh, we've been able to have enough experience with Craft and Craft Connect to know that. If you choose to engage, as Dr. McCauley has, has shared repeatedly, it, it is helpful. So again, we look forward to seeing you online and I'm grateful to Mark and to Kristen and uh, hope you have a wonderful evening. Thanks, thanks so much. Have a great week, everybody. Thank you, everybody.